Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced a signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, Forefront family. Welcome back to another episode of the Forefront Bi-Weekly Roundup. It's July 6th, two days after July 4th. So happy July 4th to all the Americans out there. Alex, my friend, how are you? Doing well. Much needed digital detox this weekend, spending time in the mountains. I know we. Uh, it, this goes for both, I think, bull markets and bear markets for different reasons. It's yes. just get away from the screen. It's healthy. Yes, it's absolutely healthy. And in fact, I think we're going to do a little bit. Maybe you'll say that we're not really committing to this. But when I was doing the outline for this week's podcast, I felt like I was doing a sort of analog of going away to the mountains, what Alex had done. Because, <laughs> And I'll explain a little bit, because this is a special episode of the Roundup. Usually we go into social tokens, we talk about DAOs, new launches, new concepts, then we go to the buzzworthy news and the philosophy bombshell. But a lot of this episode that you're listening to now will be sort of a retrospective of what we've been doing at Forefront for the Web3 Creator Residency. We're so stoked to share with you the resident creators and their stories and their projects. But we also have this theme of thinking about Web3 use cases. So Alex, I wasn't on the previous pod with you and Julia. I'm not sure if y'all touched on this, but were you aware of like the general controversy and buzz around, you know, Packy? I think Packy McCormick was on a podcast. He was asked about Web3 use cases. Some clips from this went viral. Mark Andreessen was also on a podcast with Tyler Cowen, where Tyler asked him outright, what's the Web3 use case? And, you know, another clip from this went viral. And it was sort of a humorous take because we were watching these clips of Mark Andreessen and Packy McCormick. And the perception was that these thought leaders were having a lot of trouble articulating clearly the use cases of Web3. Did y'all jam on this or did you think about this? We didn't touch this last week, so we can talk about it a little bit this week, but it's so funny. (laughs) I think this is a good thing and a bad thing in this space, just to comment on it. Someone posted this a few weeks ago talking about how it's funny. No one in DAOs can even describe what a DAO is. And I think there's a benefit to that. At first you think, oh, this is a shit show. No, no one knows what they're doing. But I think it's still trying to find its identity. So I think it's good that it's not locked in this box so far about here's exactly what it is. Now, Web3 is a larger thing. It's just so enigmatic. I'm not surprised people can't clearly define it because I think people see it in different ways. And Web3 is so all-encompassing that you could define it in whatever on-ramp you came through and be right, be partially right. So yeah, I totally agree that it's one of the reasons why I still constantly look at quote unquote beginner videos describing what is Web3? Because I realize everyone describes it differently and through the aggregate of all of these different definitions of it, you can get closer to what it is, even though it's difficult to define it in a single sentence. At least that's what I do. No, I am just loving that you just said that because this was this was going to be like my my second point after kind of being tongue in cheek about about these clips that had gone viral. I absolutely think you're right. I think this is actually a good thing. I think it's a good thing that the sort of conceptual forms are not so firmly established 
that someone can just come right out and say, well, this is what Web3 is. This is the use case. These are the use cases. And this is kind of the point that I would like to make in terms of why we've chosen Web3 use cases for the theme of this podcast. But before I do that, I want to actually read a passage from one of Packy. He wrote a two-part piece on his Substack. So after this happened, after he, I don't know, it must have been like some sort of like waking up moment for Packy where he realized, oh my gosh, I kind of fumbled that. He ended up writing a two-part piece on his Substack, a really tour de force. He's an amazing writer about Web3 use cases, making the case. And again, I'm the first person to say sometimes when you're under pressure, in addition to the concepts being undetermined and, you know, just sometimes when you're on the spot, you just can't, something that you articulate is going to fall short. But he definitely makes a very intelligent argument for the use cases in the current, the present. And then he also makes a very compelling argument for the Web3 use cases of the future. But this passage is from the very first article where he's talking about the present use cases. And he's pointing out a tweet from one of his friends and colleagues that was kind of asking why Twitter has gone so quiet. And Alex, you and I spoke about this yesterday. So this person had tweeted, gosh, you know, where have all the hype ringleaders gone in this bear market? No one's saying a peep. And this is what Packy writes in response to that. Plenty of people replied with examples to this tweet of people who've kept tweeting and writing useful things through the crash and pointed out that what he was saying was true of equity investors too. It's easy to tweet and write when things are going well. It's harder to do it when things are going badly and the bears are waiting to pounce on any glimmer of optimism. But if the thing that many of us have been saying the whole time, that we're not excited by the price, we're excited by the technological and social aspects, then now is the very best time to write about Web3 when price clearly can't be the exciting thing. So this podcast, I like it too. And this podcast, thank you, Packy, hat tip to you. This podcast, it's been inspired by this passage. And I'm going to make a case especially in the beginning. And Alex, I know you're going to find your way to weave things all together. I'm going to make a case for the social aspects, as Packy says. But in particular, I'm going to put Web3 tech in the background. And I'm going to speak about the values that are animating Web3. This personally is what I am so excited about. And the values, are, honestly, are what I'm incredibly bullish about. And so let's hop into the Web3 creator residency. And then I'm going to weave this in with why I think the values of Web3 are so profoundly powerful at this time. As you may know, friends, we at Forefront recently launched the Web3 Creator Residency. The mission, shortly stated, is that we are reimagining the artist residency for the 21st century metaverse. Our goal, our long-term goal, is that the Web3 Creator Residency becomes the MacArthur Fellowship of Web3. And the really cool thing is that the W3CR, as we call it, is only the first step. It's the first element of an entire cohesive Web3 Creator ecosystem that we are building out at Forefront to empower the world builders of today and tomorrow. So we began at the end of April with a two-week open call. We received 100 applications from Web3 creators all over the world at all different stages of their careers. And we were faced with a truly excruciating decision to winnow these down to 16 finalists. And that's a very large number of finalists, you may be thinking to yourself. And that's how impressive these applications 
were. So oftentimes with these sorts of fellowships or residencies, Alex, a lot of the action happens behind the scenes, but this is a web three creator residency. So we wanted the community to be involved in a very special way and to have a voice from day one. So I want to talk about the next stage of the residency, because I think that this is very relevant to the point that we're trying to make about the values of web three. So the next stage of the residency, we wanted to give each finalist an opportunity to storytell and world build around their proposed residency projects. And like the MacArthur Fellowship, we don't place any restrictions on what it means to be a Web3 creator. Creators run the gamut. And for our first co the fields of endeavor range from writing to music to 3D art to education to social impact to graffiti street art. We held four live meets and greets with the communities, well over eight hours of programming, with each finalist getting their time on the digital stage to tell their story. Now, after this, this is followed by a community curation stage on Snapshot. The community is going to now help us vote in the winning resident creators. Again, we this is Web3. So we knew that we wanted the community voting to be token-gated in some fashion, but we wanted to go deeper than just the question of, are you holding FF? First, talking about Web3 values, core Web3 values. There's the question of accessibility and inclusivity. And actually, this is when the the, the bear market had definitely taken uh, taken root. And we'll come back to this, this question about Web3 values. But we knew we wanted to have a minimum threshold of FF that was inclusive. So we said, if you hold at least five FF in your wallet, you're in. You can participate in the community curation stage. So that's the minimum amount. But what about the maximum? We also knew, Alex, that we didn't want FF whales to have an outsized influence on the vote, notwithstanding their time or position in the community. And this, as we know, Alex, has been mm -hmm. a recurring sore point in tokenized governance. And as in many of our conversations here in the Forefront Pod, we wanted to integrate a dimension of context and commitment. Folks with more context in the FF community, folks with more context into our values, our ethos, should have more influence in this voting stage. So it was clear that if it was just as simple as giving any holder of FF a vote that was proportional to their holdings that we often see, this is clearly inviting of suboptimal governance. Hypothetically, people who want to game the vote with no other connection or context to Forefront can do a mass buy of FF, gain influence in the vote, and then dump after the snapshot closes. So we actually worked very closely with the snapshot team and we were writing back and forth. We got on a call with them. These are the people that designed the platform. And we did a form of voting that was completely new to us. So we began by whitelisting voters and specific wallets. If you wanted to vote, you had to be a member of the FF Discord. So you had to sign up with your Discord handle and one wallet addy. So the number of FF tokens you held in that wallet was like a first layer proxy for interest in the W3CR, we manually assigned a certain amount of voting power based on how many tokens you held. There were only three tiers. So I think it was if you held between 5 and 49 FF, you received X voting power. If you held 50 to 99 FF, you received more than that. But we capped it at 100. So holding 100 FF gave you the maximum voting power possible at this first stage. And this way, we limited the influence of the whales. But now, Alex, there was a second layer proxy. So this one was for commitment and context. There was the possibility now of receiving a boost of voting power on top of the one that you received in the first layer. But this was contingent on how long you had been a member of the FF Discord and how long you had held the FF in that whitelisted wallet. 
So this was a lot of manual labor of us checking records, us checking Etherscan, and us doing manual calculations. We wanted to welcome new members who had joined FF and bought tokens just to have a voice in the vote. We knew that would happen and we wanted to welcome that, but we also wanted to hat tip the people who had been a member of the FF community for a longer time or had held their FF tokens for months prior. We knew that this was a proxy for deeper commitment. So they received a boost to that voting power. So this is how, Alex, the six winning creators were chosen. Three were curated by the community. And then after those three were curated, the FF team came in and curated the final three. It was kind of throwing the ideal dinner party. You had to know who the first three were to be able to curate the final. It had to be the great mix of creators. We had to get the right people to the table. So... I go through this example, Alex, to make a point about Web3, which is a conversation I've had with a colleague in the space. And I think it's more important than ever to double down on this. You know, when we say, when we ask ourselves, what's the Web3 version of X? What's the Web3 version of Y? I think it's very powerful to say that this Web3 version of X is much more compelling when we ideate on the basis of, when we lead with the values. The values that are animating Web3 world builders will change the horizon of possibilities. I think the less interesting dimension is to talk about the technology and how far this is being monetized, which is often the conversation when we focus on use cases, because I think this conception is constrained by current values. Alex and I have known each other now for more than a year. I was the one that was fortunate enough to onboard Alex onto Forefront. A lot of our first conversation was about values. I remember that conversation. Yep. It was a lot about attitudes and beliefs and the inspiring people that we were meeting. And so I think the far more important dimension here, again, is, as I've said, the values. So we're now two weeks into the W3CR. We have three resident creators who are currently in residency. This is the first cohort. This goes until mid-July. And then we have a second cohort with the final three resident creators who come in. So I'm going to introduce to the Forefront family and to Alex the three resident creators in residency now, tell you a bit about their projects, and I'm actually going to play some clips from the residency sessions and workshops. So part of this is it's very important that they're in virtual residency. So we're giving the creators a white canvas. We're saying you have two to three hours of being in residency, you can program this however you want to. It can be a public reading, it can be a solo exhibition, it can be a panel dialogue with thought leaders in your field, it can be an open studio sharing work in progress. It's carte blanche, but we're recording all of this to be able to share with the community. So if you can't partake in it synchronously, you can catch up asynchronously. And so I have clips from each of these sessions that I wanna play for y'all that I think kind of embody the heart of these three resident creators. So. First up, Alex, I think you're really going to like Allie. So first up is Allie. Allie is an early childhood educator and play advocate who has been working with children aged zero to eight for nearly 20 years. Now, she is building out her project, and it's called Play Library. Now, this is a spin on toy libraries which is a well-established concept all around the world. This is not her invention. And a toy library is just like it sounds. A toy library has a category of play materials instead of books, shall we say. And you can check out these materials as you would at any other library for a period of time and then return them. But the Web3 twist here is, well, there's a lot of Web3 twists. First of all is the values, and we'll get into that. But she's also building play library on chain so that she can make transparent the movement of these materials around a community. And so we can tell stories about that and add value to what these communities are building through the play library. 
She's also using Web3 Tech to build Play Library specifically as an open source public good so that this code exists and anyone anywhere can stand up their own Play Library as a decentralized cooperative. So we were talking earlier about values that animate Web3 and the most powerful aspect of Ali's project, in my opinion, are the values. The concept of play, Alex, what you just had tipped at the beginning when you were like, I think the vagueness of people's answers of like, what is a DAO? What is Web3? What are the use cases is an advantage. And so this concept of play is very, very powerful, lies at the heart of Ali's work. But Ali's passion is actually open-ended play, and this extends to the very materials that she uses. And curation is a very important part of this. So she is a really big fan of just using simple materials for play, and she has been standing up pop-up open play sessions in farmers markets, in parks for several years now, just doing this on her own, doing this out of the pure love for it. And she gets kids that just spend hours, you know, playing with tape, you know, playing with cardboard <laughs> box. Her favorite material is just wooden blocks. And she has it's a the same very, thing for cats. You spend $100 yeah. <laughs> on a toy and then they exactly. want the box, the toy came in. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. And her thesis, which I, I, I live into it more and more every single time that I go to one of her sessions, and it, her thesis is that these open-ended play materials are really powerful for engaging children's minds and nurturing creativity, risk-taking, adventurousness, flexibility, adaptability. So this is very, very powerful. Allie is essentially, I think, Trojan horsing, new paradigm for education, for caretaking of children into a concept of a library that bridges IRL with URL. So I really can't do it justice in the four minutes that I just explained it. And so I really feel like if anyone is interested, please, Ali is now on her third week of the residency. Come by, go into the Forefront Discord. We have all of the events there. We'll also include in the show notes the community page that gives uh, insight into each of the resident creators, all of their events, and has previous recordings of all the previous events. But I'm going to play a clip now. I'm actually going to play three clips and I'm going to pause them and, and kind of narrate and set up things because the context may not be incredibly evident. But the first clip from Allie is just her introducing herself and the play library concept. I am an early childhood educator, have been for 20 years now, and I am working on a project that is called Play Library. So I'm working on creating a community toy library here where I live in Northwest Washington. A big part of it is that I'm trying to use Web3 tools to do it because I am trying to build it on chain so that it's community owned and governed. And then also our toy catalog would be on chain so that we can tell stories of how materials move around our community and how children use them. So I am really, I've always been really drawn toward open-ended play. I'm very like Reggio Emilia inspired and I've done some work. Yeah, like lots of more like loose parts, tinkering approaches. Okay, so that's the first clip, and this is just Ali introducing herself and the broader concept. The second clip I wanted to play back for Alex and the Forefront fam because I love Ali's description of Web3 as being centered around this ethos of playfulness. And I think that this is absolutely one of our greatest strengths. And I want to play this clip, and then I kind of just want to plant as a provocation that this, you know, 
I really, really hope that the bear market, and I know that I'm not taking this lightly, folks have lost money, folks have lost their livelihood. There is obviously reason for many to feel discouraged. But what I'm hoping for is that this bear market doesn't put too big of a dent in the heart of playfulness that is at the center of Web3, because I think that is one of our superpowers. So here is Ali's description of Web3. We're doing this weird, big online experiment. And that's what's interesting about Web3. I'm not a technical person. I'm not a developer. But I find that kind of the playful ethos of it all, like it's a really, people are really trying to design really playful ecosystems for people to gather in communities around. And so I think it's possible to find some shared value around play, especially this kind of play, like being able to just, yeah, just mess around with stuff. And then how do we create a shared collection of materials that can move around a community and then get people to tell stories about those so that we keep increasing the value and pulling people in without it having to be something that costs anyone lots of money or makes one person a ridiculous amount of money. I'm really trying to create a really equitable community-based system. That is the second clip. And then this final clip that I want to play from Ali, Alex, and Forefront Fam, is you'll hear first one of the session participants speak up and say, oh, this is not the sort of Web3 project that I would expect to find in this space, which is very, very sort of provocative prompt. And I really wanted to share Ali's response to this. Again, this concept of playfulness being at the heart of Web3. A project like this isn't something I would necessarily expect to be part of the Web3. So it's just cool to see the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I have tried to figure out how to launch this project for about five years. And so a lot of the the two structures that you see most commonly, there's businesses and there's nonprofits. And I just couldn't picture either. Like I dipped my toes into both, but this didn't seem to fit in either category. And late last year, I was just doing some Googling and learned about decentralized organizations. I think of Play Library, what I'm trying to launch is a decentralized cooperative. No one is the executive director. No one is the person who's at the top and it's all in their brain. And if they disappear, it all falls apart. So I'm really interested in decentralization, especially when it comes to something that is a community good And I couldn't find really a lot of examples of people doing things in early childhood with Web3 or things that benefit families. But it strikes me, and this isn't in a bad way, that no one totally knows what they're doing. Everyone's really engaged in the process of it. Like everyone is really just winging it in a big way. And I think that the loudest conversation is obviously about cryptocurrency. And so it's easy to kind of dismiss that aspect. But the community and organizational aspect and the people, the human aspect And our ability to decentralize and share more is, it seems like a good platform for that. I love that description. The main reason being that she described the Web3 approach as not like a better business or a better nonprofit, but it's its own third category and it has its own strengths. So I think a lot of people have been defining, here's why a DAO is better than a a nonprofit or a cooperative or a business in these different ways. If we're constantly comparing, it's almost like a a skeuomorphic. Automatically, we're thinking about it skeuomorphically. So if we can think about it non-skeuomorphically, it's its own new thing. It's very difficult to think in that way. So that's awesome to see from someone who self-defined as being non-technical and she's been looking for a medium through which to launch this and suddenly this new, totally new thing comes through and it's not just a better of either one of those, it's a totally new thing and it aligns perfectly with what she's trying to accomplish. So I love that description. 
Yes, I love the emphasis on process, and I wish the debate on use cases could take heed of this, this concept of open-ended play and what there's playful ethos. We see this in the memes. We see this in initiatives like JokeDAO. I mean, we even see this, I think, in the meta concept of NFTs, right? NFTs, I think the reason why folks get so bullish about it is because it's something that really plays on the emotions. It harkens back to this childhood impulse of collecting really obscure things that most people, they look at you doing, and you're like, what the heck are you doing this? What's the point of doing this? There, there's no point. It's just pure joy. You're doing it You're doing it out of pure joy. And I really do think that in terms of Web3 values, process, and open-endedness is very, very important. And I hope that this doesn't get lost in the raging controversy over use cases and trying to nail these down. So that is Allie, my friends. And now the second resident creator that I'm eager to introduce you to is Entez. So Entez, that's his artist name, Juan Jimenez, that's his in real life name, so to speak. Entez is a multidisciplinary graffiti and street artist of more than two decades. He hails from Peru. He has exhibited internationally, including the Museum of Graffiti of Miami, the Strat Museum of Amsterdam, the Contemporary Art Museum of Bogota. And he's currently giving voice to the rich diversity and dynamism of South American and Afro-Peruvian culture via his NFT project called Garas Latinas, or Latin Faces. So Entis is a dynamo. You, again, I can't really give a lot of justice by talking. You, you have to see him in action. And one of his recent workshops, he brought us into what he called the Graffiti Vortex, a major permanent installation that he was commissioned to paint in a major park in Lima, Peru. And he showed painting a face from like zero to complete completion. And it was just amazing to see him in action. He had the, the, the paint cans, he had the spray gun, and he was literally laughing aloud as he was doing this, Alex. And it was a joy to see. He was literally giggling and laughing out loud and saying, I love this, I love this. And I mean, these, these are just moments that are so incredibly poignant to me, but he is passionate about revolution, about freedom, about putting marginalized peoples on the map by putting them in a frame, as he says. A theme of his residency has been resisting with Web3. What I love about Intez is how dueling worlds come together within his art. He began doing graffiti in the streets at a very young age. And when he began to get attention for that, he got a scholarship to art school. So he loves going back and forth between classical art, traditional art styles, and the street styles of graffiti. And he says this actually frees him up to do more radical things when he goes back and forth between these very disparate styles. And an explicit goal of Entes with his NFT project is to bridge the metaverse, the digital world, with the IRL physical world. So he's using this unabashedly colorful, dynamic style that he's developed over two decades of painting in the streets in over 50 countries in the world, in abandoned properties and buildings on murals, to now create digital artwork of 50 faces, literally colored faces, and figuratively colored faces, colored peoples. And these colors communicate so much joy and strength and vitality. And this project he's calling Caras Latinas or Latin Faces. He's telling the stories of his people. And what he wanted to do with the residency was specifically to launch a guerrilla street campaign with the community. He wanted all of us to join him. He was going to ship posters and stencils. And then we were going to go out into our communities and sort of have a Caras Latinas invasion. And then he was going to create 
create a digital map with these geotagged locations of the Latin faces. And participating in this guerrilla intervention would get you a place on the whitelist for the NFT release of the Caras Latinas. This is kind of in flux right now. We've definitely been having conversations because it's super quiet. So now it's almost like we had an assumption going into the residency that there would be this established audience just waiting for us. And that's no longer the case because of the bear market. Things have gotten so quiet. But now, now, Alex, that challenge that we are facing as sort of custodians of the W3CR, but also as, as the artists, is how actually now can I use this gorilla aesthetic and these gorilla values to actually organically cultivate a community from like ground zero? And so for folks who don't know, gorilla art is a street art movement. And it owes a lot to the early graffiti art movement. It's basically guerrilla art is a creative, unexpected interruption within everyday life. It's usually by an anonymous artist. And one way that I love to think about this, Alex, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I think it was back in the 90s when these stickers began appearing first in California and then literally went global viral of Andre the Giant. And sometimes some of them would have obey, like they would have the text obey. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but this is a classical example of a guerrilla intervention. So Entes is taking on this very provocative question of what can guerrilla street art look like when transposed to the borderless, boundaryless metaverse and Web3. So my friends, stay tuned. If you are excited about figuring out how Entes is answering this question, again, he's about two weeks through his residency. I implore you to check out the show notes, click on the website, find out when these artists are doing their next resonating sessions because they're absolutely exhilarating. So I'm setting up the first clip here. I'm going to play the first clip for Alex. This is a really great example of how Entis is bringing together two disparate worlds. In this clip, he's actually talking about an artistic technique for which he is known called wall roller. So he will go into an abandoned property, he'll enter illegally with his paints and his chemicals, and he'll paint his graffiti on a concrete wall. And then using a chemical method, he somehow is able to peel that wall off, the layer of the wall off, and he takes his graffiti intervention and the concrete substance with him back to display on a wall. So he's merging the worlds of more traditional trapped art and street art. But here in this clip, He's describing a little bit of this approach, and I just found it so beautiful. I want to share it with you. I put the media on front of my graffiti. I let it wait like a day or half a day and peel the wall off. So for this particular technique, you can see in the back of the work, is you see a little bit the concrete. I go to abandon other places enter illegal with my pain, with my chemical stuff. What happened with these misses places? Like the mistake is part of the piece. And like an artist, you need to understand is you can control everything. And actually this texture is what I love of this kind of work because it's a conversation with a wall. Some parts come with me and the world take some parts. That is the first clip. And then the second clip, Entes is kind of conveying one of his central themes in his work, which is, you know, we talked about it earlier in speaking about Caras Latinas. It's about racial diversity in Latin America that has come about specifically as a result of colonization, the migration of slaves, 
And there were native races that were in South America before the colonization, the Aztecs and the Incas. So Entis is very passionate about telling the story of this racial diversity in South America and the multicultural identity that has been denied and marginalized. Entis wants to give a voice to his peoples and their stories. As he says, my work speaks about racism and about how through the type of project like Garas Latinas, we can understand each other more and love each other more. So this is Entes speaking about his travels throughout the world and how they've informed his art. Starting travel in 2002, my first place is Chile. I'm so Peruvian, so I love this country and the cultures in the past. And my source comes from African people, actually. So that mix is completely different when you see Mexico or France or Germany or New York or I don't know, whatever other country and return to Peru, you feel more open to, I feel more open to tell these people, we are here. We are Peruvians. We are Latin American people. We come from Incas and another cultures, pre-Aztecs, pre-Incas too. And actually the mixes with the black persons and the white people too and the Spanish people to invite, uh, to do the abolition here. So this is the reason because I paint what I paint because I'm starting to learn what's going on there. And I try to put these persons in a frame. That is the second clip by Entez. Um, Alex, what, what are your thoughts? What are your impressions of our friend Entes? You can just tell from the way he's speaking that he just absolutely loves what he does and he wants to get the word out about what he does. And I think, again, just coming back to this whole theme of th this is the strength of defining Web3 in whatever way that you see fit. It's at that phase right now where it can be defined in a lot of different ways. And I think what's awesome about that is depending on where people are coming from, they are going to see the value of Web3 in very different ways. And in the very early days of Web3, it was almost purely a, a technological type of definition about what Web3 was. It's very much talking about the infrastructure stack and comparing it to the old internet. And I'd say maybe even the early adopters, they had that kind of value ethos of here's what it's going to allow us to do from a very first principle standpoint, which is remove the middlemen. But now you have all these different flavors of that value where you have people coming from the music background, from the artistic background, from the writing background, from all these different places where they're coming from, they're going to see the value and define Web3 very differently. And I love having that open definition. And just from the last one, these aren't typical projects. The ones we're used to seeing are very much DeFi and trying to replace some of the old tools here. And this is very much a cultural forward, a community forward type of use case for Web3. And I love that we're as at Forefront, we're bringing up these different voices and allowing people to say, this is also Web3. This is a different definition of Web3. There's no one right definition of Web3 that pigeonholes you down. All of these different people are not only have their own specific creative ideas, but now they're taking this brand new medium that was said by Ali before is completely new. It's not a better X. It's not a better Y. It is this completely new separate thing. And you have these people, this incredibly creative people who, again, have their own path and now have identified this new medium through which they can realize 
their dreams and these projects that they're putting together. And the more we can get the word out to other people like this, the more we can let them know that there is this brand new medium and it's going to vibe with these different people who looked at the business route, looked at the nonprofit route and said, that's just not for me. I don't see it there. And there's this wholly different route that's very community focused, very cultural focused. And you can tell people like him, he's just absolutely just jived to, to be working on this stuff that he's doing now and then taking it through this medium of the Web3 Creative residency. So I love hearing these different stories. Yes, yes. And Tess is filled with love of life and love of his art. And <laughs> it's a privilege to watch him in action. It truly is. So this is the final resident creator, last but not least, Alex Purdy. So Alex is a producer, musician, and she was actually a fellow of the FWB DAO. And she's currently producing her first album called Preseason Training. Preseason Training is about Alex's first love, which is basketball. Alex had this incredibly formative experience in school when her deepest, most heartfelt desire was to make the varsity basketball team. And she trained devotedly to this purpose. And though there was disappointment in the first instance of this story, Alex thereafter found something truly redemptive and uplifting in this process that she had gone through, this process of preseason training, how she describes it. What do you do? How do you stand up with your determination and will when no one is watching? And in this process, she found that she could sort of transcend. She could step outside of these constraints, of these human constraints. It's like the Icarus mythology, right? Of flying, flying close to the sun. But this is an innate human aspiration, is what Alex is saying. And ultimately, yes, there is great risk, but there is unsurpassed fulfillment in pushing oneself to greater heights because it's in this pushing oneself to greater heights that is sort of the essence of our human nature. This is what Alex's message is. And her first residency session was incredible. She had to take a second week off, so she's kind of catching up. But the first residency session was about how she has taken her training map, so to speak, for basketball and transposed it onto a training map for her as a musician. So I have one clip from Alex here, and she is talking about training and specifically how she first started out, as many, many people do, with using YouTube, using YouTube very frequently to educate herself in all aspects of how to be a musician. And so she's kind of introducing the first part of the clip. She's talking about the challenge and then I think the joy of being able to find the language for what it is that you're learning, right? Because it's so clumsy at first. You don't even have the language for it. But through grappling with these new experiences, through metabolizing them, you slowly begin to be able to articulate the things that you're doing. And that's a very transformative experience. But I think the rest of the clip is really, really cool. And it touches on a different aspect of Web3 values than we've been exploring up to this point. So this is Alex. Most of my training has been searching, trying to find the next best question, wanting more expressive guitar playing, but not knowing what to type in, not knowing, oh, I want guide tones. When I was learning bass, they would talk about instead of playing like the root note, C in the bottom. So if you're playing C, you can also play a at the bottom and it's just so much more emotional and we're all crying already you know <laughs> just kidding but you get what i mean <laughs> those creating those two schedules creating those parallels helped me figure out some way of continuing to grow that wasn't so guitar bass drums 
get through this entire course, get through this entire course, get through this entire course, instead having it be more organic, more vague by saying chords, percussion, vocals, visuals. And if I'm meeting that in my heart, then it doesn't matter if I've finished the course. So I created this routine around Kobe. And the thing with Kobe is he would get up and train on four hours of sleep or on no sleep because he has to take care of his kids and stuff. The sleep deprivation aspect of it is not how I go about things. I used to be on a high dose of Adderall and I've been off of it for five or six years now. And the path of trying to have energy again and not feel like a total slug and unable to operate in my life without that medicine has taught me so much and that's an important part for me to share about my process because sometimes we'll see hustle culture or whatever. People are just taking energy drinks and not sleeping and everything. And I want to be able to enjoy finishing a song and to feel awake enough to then have dinner with my family or help my mom take out the trash. To be able to show up, even though maybe I can't show up for 10 friends, to have a handful where when I'm with them, I'm not dead inside because there's nothing left in me. I don't know if I can curse on this thing. I didn't ask, so I won't. <laughs> but <laughs> for me, if I only get four hours of sleep, I'm like a puddle of tears. And taking care of myself, being on this healing journey has what's made music so enjoyable and something that I want to continue doing. And something John Bellion talks about is his path of getting off of social media and producing for other artists, finding ways to make music continue to be inspiring and not just fulfilling the quotas of do a huge tour, the fame, the fortune, all of that stuff. So rest is the difference between maybe the way Kobe would train and the way I would train. So that is Alex. And what I love about Alex, there's so many reasons to love Alex, but what I love about what we just heard from Alex is that this meta value of like bringing consciousness, bringing humane values to systems, making them humane, making them living, making them fluid. She touches on this, right? She touches on like, I had to learn to get away from doing this sort of systematic, rigorous process of training. I had to have something much more organic and vague so that I could sort of feel my way through it, feel what is living for me, feel feel what is kind of outdated, feel what needs to be recycled and, and sort of death. You know, she, sp she speaks about death a lot and that she has to, what she really, really has to pay attention to in her life is like, what are the parts of her life or her training or her aspirations that have kind of like gone past the expiration date? And so obviously Web3, the values of Web3, looking at Web2, what went wrong? Where did we go wrong with it? This is a really big part of this, bringing humane consciousness and humane values to systems. Rest versus hustle culture. I mean, I think this is a really big part of Web3, Alex. I don't know if- Very you, big on that. It's yeah. big, big part of this. It's an important part of Alex's process. I know Alex and I, Alex, podcast host Alex and I have spoken quite a bit about this. <laughs> And when she says, how do we find ways to make music continue to be inspiring versus checking off the boxes? This is something that Alex and I spoke about yesterday when doing our prep call. A lot of Web3 is performative. 
And this is, I think, a reason why things have gotten so quiet with the bear market, because the genuine, you know, the genuine impulse, if you're building out of a genuine impulse, you know, the token price is not going to dampen your spirits. But if you're building from a place of when price go up and when this, when that, then yes, the token price is totally, you're going to feel like you don't have a lot to say. And I think that's so, so important, Alex. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree in that this is something throughout Web3 we've been trying to figure out collectively, I feel like, which is how do we still work towards these different goals without burning ourselves out? And there are different elements in here where it's very remote focused. You are having very ambitious people coming from the business world and then coming in and advocating for that same exact type of work culture of just kill yourself over the work. And you have to sit back and ask yourself, like, okay, why am I working towards this? Is it just for number go up or is there something inherent in the work itself? Maybe a better way to look at it is, am I enjoying the process or am I enjoying the prospect of this end goal? And that's the only thing that's fueling me. And if it's the latter, you're going to feel zero motivation and drive when the price is down because your entire purpose for building towards that has gone away. But if it's someone like Alec or any of these other people who just spoke, you can just tell they're just dripping with passion. They've been doing this for a while. And again, Web3 is a medium through which they can realize their passions. And that to me is more of what Web3 is. It's The technology is really cool. And I've dove in deep into the technology itself and from a, just a total cryptography standpoint, it's very interesting. But what really matters about Web3 is what it allows you to do that was previously impossible. And I think that's what's showing for these. We just haven't seen projects like this in the limelight. And now we're bringing these things to light and saying there is a new way to bring these dreams to fruition that previously either wasn't possible at all or just did not align very well with the way the artist wanted to bring these things to the world. So it's awesome to see that this new technology is enabling artists to actually realize their dreams and their passions. And it actually turns into Web3 is not the main focal point. It is the medium through which these things can actually get realized and happen. And I think when you talk about what is Web3, Web3 itself is not really what's most compelling. It's what's possible with Web3. What can Web3 now bring to life that was previously impossible? Yes, 100%, 100%. And just as a sort of alpha for the family listening out there, pretty soon coming up, we're thinking later July, mid, maybe in the latter part of July, we're going to be launching the Genesis W3CR NFT. But here again, in keeping with the theme of our episode, this is once again, the tooling, the NFTs, obviously, they're there, they're very interesting, they're very useful. But the primary driver that's animating this NFT launch is they're going to be the values, the values that are going to underline the very design of it, the ownership of the NFT. And it's going to be community ownership, where the royalties are going, the vision of the entire Web3 creator ecosystem that Forefront is building out. You, my friends, you who are listening, you can play a part in this. And we're going to invite you to do that step by step, starting with The Genesis W3CR NFT launch will hopefully be coming by the end of this month. So a bit of alpha, keep your eyes out for that. So Alex, that was my W3CR overview. I hope that I've given you a little bit of an intimate look at what we've been doing at Forefront. Very cool. So let us hop over to our social token segment. We're going to just look at a really exciting social token NFT project. And this is 
Legion's Creator Economy course. So this just launched, and this actually has a direct connection to the W3CR, given that this is our special W3CR episode. We're going all out. So Legion, as you may know, is a general partner at Variant. This is a first check crypto fund investing in the ownership economy. Lee is a serial founder and an impassioned advocate of the creator class. She's known as the passion economy pioneer, and Lee has thought and written extensively on the creator economy, what she calls the creator middle class, and on building a more just and equitable world generally. So she's written many excellent pieces, including most recently, I have to recommend a theory of justice for Web3. We're speaking about the values of Web3 today, and this article of Lee's is right on point. She's exploring the question of the design principles that can guide us in consciously creating an internet that redeems the mistakes of Web2, and moreover fulfills, really fulfills the promise of building a more equitable and just world. So we'll leave that in the show notes as well. Definitely recommend that you check this out. The Creator Economy course. This is a course that Lee taught last year, 2021, four-week-long course in partnership with Maven about the creator economy. Covered the history of the industry, creators as businesses, Web3, future predictions. 150 students were ultimately accepted into the live course, but the waiting list numbered in the thousands. So the awesome thing is that Lee has made all the videos and materials from this course available to everyone for free. And who is this course really for? Who is it tailored for? So number one, founders and operators. Lee is saying if you have an early stage startup in the creator space that's still finding a path to product market fit, this course is for you. It's also for business and product leads. Say you work at a company where creators are an important segment. You want to understand them. You want to better serve them. And finally, just explore students and investors. You want to understand this emergent creator economy. You want to be able to validate new opportunities for building or investing and creating yourself. The course Lee recommends going through the materials chronologically because it is sequenced. One course is building on the one lecture is building on the past. It covers everything from an overview of the creator economy to creators as businesses, the creator perspective, go-to-market strategy, startup investing, the future of the creator economy, and more. So the really exciting aspect of this is that Lee is experimenting with an NFT launch. So she's created these course NFTs that allow students to deepen their engagement with the course materials. Now, all the course content remains free, and she believes deeply that this should always be the case but the NFTs will grant additional perks. And so there's three tiers of NFTs and the NFTs are super cute. You have to check this out. It'll be in the show links. So the first is the honor roll. Second is student of the year. And third is valedictorian. And so with the honor roll, you are supporting Lee's open sourcing of this course and you can join the exclusive course telegram and hang out with the other students. For the second tier student of the year, you get the honor roll benefits, plus you get the ability to vote on future course workshop topics, and you get priority access to future course cohorts that Lee will run. And finally, the highest, the valedictorian, which is two ETH sponsorship at that level. This get all the benefits of all the previous tiers, plus a 30-minute one-on-one session with Lee to discuss course questions and assignments, et cetera. So this is a really cool way to engage more deeply with the course and with Lee herself, this sort of optional supporting of the open sourcing through the NFTs. And the really, really cool thing, Alex and Forefront fam, is that 100% of the proceeds from Lee's NFT launch are being donated to causes. Number one, reproductive rights. And number two, 
Forefront's Web3 Creator Residency. So we have jammed with Lee and we have been honored to receive her support. She sees the vision, what we're building out long term to empower and uplift the Web3 world builders of tomorrow. And she has been so gracious as to donate the proceeds from her NFT launch to the Web3 Creator Residency. So as awesome as the residents sound on the, through these clips, and I really hope that listening to them has gotten your, has really intrigued you about digging into these human beings and finding more, more about their art and their projects. We have so much more in store. And really, the most excruciating part of all of this is that it could have been six other resident creators. The talent pool was so deep and the amount, the sort of purity of that human aspiration runs so deep. So we are building out a full-fledged creator ecosystem at Forefront that will be able to reach many, many more people. So I can't give away too much alpha, but you definitely want to stay tuned. And especially if you're a Web3 creator, an aspiring Web3 creator or an established one, you definitely want to stay tuned because this Web3 creator ecosystem we are building is for you. I love seeing stuff like this because it's just crazy to see how far along this guided material, this very catered material has come since even the short time since I started trying to research for myself what was going on in this space. It was even just back in January of 2021, it was very sporadic to find out anything. Even general about the Web3 space, you first had to figure out where this stuff is even posted. And then two, you had to claw together all this material in a chronological way yourself and then slowly start to go down these rabbit holes of whatever you're most interested in. And again, claw together material that you randomly find on Twitter. And it was it's just huge time sink. And what I love seeing about things like this is it's so catered and it takes people down an initial path and gives them the information that they need to say, one, is this for them? And then two, where else can you go from here? And it saves so much time from people researching from scratch and allows them to spend more time on actually using the information that's in these courses to actually build towards something that they might want to. And it's reallocating that time that would otherwise be spent researching towards actually creating within this space. So it's just so professional looking, it's so well put together. I love seeing more and more of these when in the different niches within Web3 because there are a lot. Lee Jin is obviously a heavy hitter in the creator economy, so it's awesome to see her lead this jointly with the Forefront fam. Yeah, it's it truly is a boon to the space. I mean, this is this course, like you were saying, Alex, really distills the insights and the learnings that she's gotten from speaking with thousands of founders and companies and studying the space and investing in the space for years. So the fact that this is completely open source, like you said, these are advantages that, you know, even until recently, just just were also much less in such a otherwise fragmented space where the quality of the stuff that you're finding on Web3, on the creator economy is still quite quite, quite primitive. So this is, this is really a boon to the space, friends. And if there's any way that you can support Legion's open sourcing of this creator course economy, it would be amazing. So with that, Alex, my friend, take yes. the baton. I know you're going to take us right into philosophy bombshells. 
So we're going to cover two main pieces of news here that have just been so big in the space, it would be stupid not to cover these in some way, shape, or form. And the first one should not be a surprise to a lot of you who have been at least on Twitter somewhat. It nearly as big as the Luna crash here was the all the drama going on with Three Arrows Capital, Voyager, BlockFi, and some other lenders and exchanges in the space that kind of imploded, partially due to very irresponsible risk strategies, really more on the three arrows capitals type of side. And then this cascading domino effect of anyone who really had any contact with three arrows capital or any contact really with the Luna implosion that it just created this domino effect of people coming down. But the real news here that I wanted to cover because that has been covered to death is SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried coming in and acting as this almost private government quote-unquote bailout for a lot of these different companies that are in this space. And there's a lot of different things to cover on this. I mean, first off, Sam Bankman-Fried, I think, is worth over $8 billion, which if you're looking at GDP, his personal worth is more than the GDP of the bottom 50 countries in the world. So it, just putting it in perspective, he is the size of a small government by himself. So I think the parallel there is pretty apt in that he is acting as his own government to bail out these different these different companies. So a little high-level overview of the companies that he's been involved in here and trying to either buy out or support throughout this process, the two big ones being BlockFi and Voyager. The big news here was that, that Sam Bankman-Fried and BlockFi agreed to a 20, $250 million revolving credit facility. And Bankman-Fried said the financing would help BlockFi navigate the market from a position of strength. Comes after BlockFi said earlier this month that it would lay off 20% of its staff because it just got it just totally imploded. Talking more about this, Zach Prince, BlockFi co-founder and CEO, said the deal with FTX was more than just a round of debt, adding it also unlocks future collaboration and innovation between the two firms. So this isn't an outright buyout. So it begs the question that what was the fine print really going on behind the scenes that says we're going to give you this line of credit of $250 million. You can actually survive throughout the bear market, get back on your feet. And what's in the fine print there, I wonder. Because it's a lot of marketing talk on, oh, it's very altruistic and we're helping them navigate through this space. And we'll get into it a little bit more about what potentially are his intentions. Are they altruistic or are they selfish? The other piece here, Voyager being the big one, Voyager Digital said Alameda Research, which is Bankman-Fried's quantitative research firm, would provide it with $500 million in financing. The deal consists of a $200 million line of cash and USDC stablecoins, as well as a separate 15,000 Bitcoin revolving facility worth approximately 300 million at current prices. So another relationship here where it seems like SBF is seeing these kind of very vulnerable companies and either looking to buy them outright, which has definitely been a part of the conversation, or providing them these lines of credit with, again, these kind of unknown fine print type of agreements that they have going on. And there's, there was another piece that came out. So that I was reading off of a CNBC article there, but there was an article here that tried to dig into what are SBF's motives really here. Title is Sam Bankman-Fried's buyouts aren't stopping crypto's dominoes from falling. The really big thing here is, again, that there are these very vulnerable companies right now, and SBF is seeing these opportunities to come in and get a huge discount. He's basically bargain hunting. 
And when you think about whatever the fine print is behind the scenes, it, it you can think of it from an altruistic standpoint where if a lot of these larger players survive, well, it's going to keep the entire market stable and therefore indirectly FTX, his company, is going to benefit from that. But then on the purely selfish side, you could see him potentially trying to create this arsenal of lenders and exchanges and buying up competition or buying up adjacent businesses and trying to create this empire, either outright owning them and absorbing them into FTX or creating these crazy deals with very heavily weighted terms on his side to say, I'm going to give you all this money and then you need to do all these things for us. He's creating this arsenal. So if you're more on the pessimistic side, that is absolutely something to be looking out for is you have this centralized player really buying up all these different, or not just buying up, but creating these very strong alliances with very strong terms in his favor in the space. So you wonder what the end goal might be for the consumer. It's going to be a lot more centralized. The other thing that's been a rumbling here has been that for people close to this deal, there have been rumblings that SBF is actually seeking a path to acquire Robinhood. And someone actually posted in the comments, doesn't Robinhood have seven times the employees the FTX does? So he's taking advantage of this downturn where he personally is in a really good spot financially. And now he can use that weight when everyone else is hurting to swoop in and say, I'm going to save you, but here are my terms. So it depends. You could see him as this totally altruistic figure. And if you've read up a lot on SBF, there are all these videos where from a very young age, he had always sought out to be ultra rich so that he could use those riches for good. So you could argue here that he definitely has the best intentions in mind, similar to you might say like a Vitalik who doesn't seem to really care that he's ultra billionaire and really is just using a lot of that, not only the money, but the platform to do a lot of good. You just have to make a decision for yourself. Is he coming at it from an altruistic standpoint or are there a lot of, is there a lot of fine print behind the scenes that we should keeping an, we should be keeping an eye out for? And bull markets have a tendency to reset people's memories and see only the rain, the sunshine and rainbows. And it's just important to be noticing these things that are happening in the bear market where people are trying to position themselves for the next bull market. And if you're not paying attention, you could get caught off guard when the next cycle implodes. This has been arguably the worst bear market. There's been a lot of effects. There's been these global macroeconomic effects that are definitely not helping. But then you have all these catastrophic things happening like Three Arrows Capital and the Luna implosion that are creating these domino effects from companies who are clearly not weighing their risk very carefully. And if you look at the actual plays, Bankless does a very good job analyzing in depth the whole Three Arrows Capital implosion. They did a really good job describing all of just the insane risks that Three Arrows Capital was taking on, not doing risk adjustments, basically taking out risky loans and then loaning out those loans for other loans. And you're just creating this domino effect where anyone you're connected to is going to be screwed. And that's exactly what happened with Voyager defaulted, uh, Three Arrows Capital defaulted on a $650 million loan to Voyager. And now they're really hurting. And SBF swoops in and takes advantage of when they're hurting and when they're down. So you have to pay attention to these things in the bear market, even though things might not be as sexy. And again, coming back to our thought, is it just number go up or is there some kind of other ethos that you're holding on to that gets you through this bear market? You have to be paying attention when these things happen because it could have huge implications in the next bull market where FTX is disproportionately well positioned to benefit in the next one. So keep an eye out for that and make your own decision on where you think he's, he might be coming from. 
I don't know if you have any comments on that or any thoughts. I'm just surprised. I mean, I know, obviously, SBF is very savvy, but I'm surprised that he also is not being suffered a serious dent of some kind from this yeah. bear market, but is thriving so much that he's going around and, like you said, throwing his weight around, going bargain hunting, doing all sorts of perhaps semi-altruistic deeds. But it's impressive. It's impressive that he seems unscathed. Yeah, you look at the businesses that are doing not well, but they're definitely doing better than they could be throughout this bear market. And a lot of times it's the businesses who have been through a bear market before and they've positioned themselves well. So if you're looking at a traditional company, what percentage of the treasury was in cash or other non-volatile assets versus actual non-stable coins? You have, if you have a company that's in 90% of their balance sheet is in different volatile tokens, that is a huge risk. And especially if you're creating these leveraged positions where it's a cascading effect, you can get absolutely wrecked when these bear markets come on with full force like it did back in May with the Luna collapse. You, you just have to be thinking as these, if you're part of these companies, you have to be thinking about the rainy day exactly as you should as an individual. Are you saving? Are you prepared for when things aren't great? Because in the crypto land right now, it is absolutely a roller coaster. The lows are very low and the highs are very high. And again, bull markets have a tendency to reset our memory and think, oh, it's always going to be great. This is the super cycle. It's not going to be like last time. Learn from these bear markets. That There's no point in going through all the pain of a bear market if you don't learn from it and keeping an eye out for these big player moves right now and thinking, what are going to be the downstream effects when the bull market comes down? Where am I going to be positioning myself? What is my thought on the players who are swinging around huge amounts of money like this? You have to make the decision for yourself. All right. So one last piece of news with equal just face palming within a bear market just to <laughs> kick your teeth in even further. Wonderland. This has been a fun story of just MTV level type of type of entertainment here or extremely depressing if you were in Wonderland yourself when it actually collapsed. The headline here is that Wonderland passes a vote to invest 25 million in Sifu Vision. I'll just read right off this article from the block. DeFi protocol Wonderland has passed a governance vote to invest $25 million into the token Sifu Vision, a crypto project founded by Wonderland's former treasury manager known as Sifu. And the vote passed today with 89% of the votes supporting the governance decision. That means it's very likely that the Wonderland community will proceed to an over-the-counter deal to acquire $25 million worth of Sifu Vision tokens, more than half of Sifu Vision's entire market cap of $42 million. These, two, these tokens will be linearly invest, vested over 12 months. So who is Sifu? For people who didn't don't remember. In January this year, Sifu was asked to leave from Wonderland after his real identity was revealed as Michael Patron, an ex-convict who was reportedly charged with identity theft in 2005. But the thing he is most well known for is co-founding the now defunct Canadian crypto exchange called Quadriga CX. And in 2018, Jerry Cotton, Sifu's business partner and the second co-founder of Quadriga CX, died on holiday in India, mysteriously. And after this death, it was found the exchange had a shortfall of almost $200 million. So months after getting fired from Wonderland, Sifu founded Sifu Vision, a decentralized investment fund and a crypto token he named after himself. And in June, Sifu made a return to Wonderland and put up a governance proposal to the project's decentralized autonomous organization, DAO, to invest in Sifu Vision's native tokens. Proposal was put to a vote last week. So there was another post by, sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right, I'll have links to all these in the show notes, <laughs> but 
This is what's absolutely bonkers about this. Sifu and team have pushed through a vote to buy $25 million of Sifu Vision, his illiquid shitcoin, which is, i.e., 14% of Wonderland's treasury right now. And he has screenshots what? of that treasury. It is an insane amount. This is not a negligible amount, right? What? And it's so crazy how Sifu now being ousted now maintains his name and goes out into the world, creates this thing with already a bad reputation on him, and through finagling, ends up getting this vote passed from the previous DAO that he was a part of with just Wonderland and just basically drains 14% of the treasury into his own quote-unquote shitcoin so that he can, and the goal here is that, I'll, I'll read right off of what he posted in the actual governance proposal, Similar to the Wonderland Treasury Management, it's my job to source the best possible deals and invest for maximum potential yield. It's difficult to put an expected yield percentage on this. I could show the DeFi trading investment performance of my personal ES, which gained 4,000% in two years. I wonder how. Or the SV wallet, which dropped by 57% in 2.5 months. The idea is that we trade, to get, trade and invest together and share in the profits. So the idea here is that by buying this Sifu Vision, he's going to use the proceeds to basically just invest them. And then he says that the Wonderland Treasury is going to share in the profits here. Even after all the shit that he's done and has no way to deserve anyone's trust. And you look at this and you say, okay, there's some weird wizardry going on. And there's a screenshot from the actual governance vote. There is this unknown address that voted yes for 143,000 time, huge amount. And then Sifu's was second weighted with 51,000 time. So there's this unknown one, and then Sifu actually voted on this, which is absolutely not a surprise. But if you actually look on the governance forum where he posted this, there seems to be a lot of people who are saying, yes, absolutely, let's do this. This seems to be a good idea. And I'm just sitting here with my head in my hands. I'm like, what do you guys do? But this is, okay, this is the good and bad thing about this, right? Not the great press, not the best press from people who have been intimately involved in this, but you do have the freedom to get out of this if your interests are not represented. And there are a lot of people who made that decision that my interests are not represented, I'm getting the hell out of here. And they got the hell out of there before this thing actually happened. And as soon as you heard that Sifu was the treasury manager and everyone just exited and like, I'm out of this project. This is just mm -hmm. sketchy as hell. And mm -hmm. the people who remained in, you might be thinking, all right, they're trying to whatever way possible, even if it's unethical and you're partnering with someone who should not be trusted, they're looking for any way possible to actually drive the price of time back up. And it's, in my opinion, a fool's errand here. So just more... Just crazy stories and governance. There's so many of them. There's so much material for us to talk about in this sense. So I just thought that was just a total shit show. I'll throw my opinion <laughs> out there. It's just a shit show. I cannot believe it. But. Oh my goodness. We need a new segment called It's a Shit Show or Dumpster Fire. <laughs> oh, there's lots of Alex. it. Yeah. Lots of it recently. <laughs> lots of it recently. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you, Alex, for taking us through the news, the shit show. Thank you, Forefront family. Let's keep our eyes trained on the, what I think, humbly, what I think is the most exciting thing about Web3, what keeps me bullish about this space, no matter the price, no matter the charts, it's the people, it's the values, it's the aspirations. And with that, I will bid you farewell, Alex, and we will see you, Forefront family, in another two weeks. Until then, take good care. Bye-bye, Forefront fam. See y'all. Bye-bye. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. 
We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.